Welcome to the podcast of the California Institute of Integral Studies, where we bring you conversations and lectures from our public program series, featuring world-renowned scholars, leaders, authors, artists, and thinkers. In this episode, transgender activist and pioneer Teresa Sparks, in conversation with Jameson Green. Teresa Sparks is an internationally recognized leader in the human rights community and the first openly transgender city department head in the history of San Francisco. This conversation, which explores how local communities impact global LGBTQI policies, was recorded on November 11, 2015, in front of a live audience in San Francisco. To make sure you never miss an episode of the CIIS Public Programs Podcast, please find us and subscribe on iTunes or visit our website at ciis.edu slash podcast. So what did you major in in college? Um, I drank a lot, if that could be considered a major, but um, I uh, primarily in civil engineering, civil engineering and chemical engineering. Mm-hmm. And after I got out, I actually went to the Navy. I left college and went to the Navy. And when I got out of the Navy, I went back. There were some, again, issues with anxiety that kept me from continuing. Um, so I did independent study. And, and um, along with a company I was working on, developed a patent in recycling uh, when I was about 27. And um, actually marketed that patent worldwide and uh, used it to build certain recycling facilities around the world. And so that's kind of how I got from college into the business world in that I, I did research in petroleum engineering and petroleum science to develop a patent and then build facilities around that patent. Very cool, very cool. Um, I was wondering, so you said that you learned about transsexualism the, tr- the word transgender wasn't quite coined yet um, in 66, 67, that time frame. But you still didn't think that there was anything you could do about it. And how did that build? When did you really begin to confront it? Well, um, I mean, you confront it all the time when you're growing up. You hide and you put on clothing and, you know, you confront it. But again, as you do that, the shame and the guilt just builds, and uh, your anxieties build, um, and particularly when you have no way to understand it. And back, keep in mind, back then, it was either a college textbook or it was slut magazines at porn stores. That's how you learned about transsexual people. Right. Um, and I didn't feel like necessarily fit in either category, although I, I would have liked to have been in the, in the latter. Um, but, um, you know, and you start reading things as you get older. Um, I was in L.A. I moved to, out of Kansas City in 79 after I outed myself to my wife at that time, and she threw me out of the house. And you know, That was my next question. Um, yeah, and that's kind of where I started this journey away from the traditional lifestyle. Um, lost a company that I had that I'd founded. Um, I moved to California in 79, and I've been in California essentially ever since. I've lived around the world, but I've lived primarily, my residence has been here. But in 85, I tried electric shock treatment. Um, that didn't work. Uh, back then, aversion therapy was designed to reinforce uh, feelings of guilt and shame. And that's what it was designed for. And I thought this was barbaric. And so I didn't continue that. So, you know, those were kind of the early years. It was mm-hmm. struggle. It was, it was uh, buy and purge. I wish I had the clothes budget today that I spent back then. Um, you, you know, it'd buy clothes. You'd wear them for two nights and then you'd get rid of them. Because mm-hmm. you're afraid of being discovered. So, you know, that's kind of my early adulthood was in, in that kind of gray area. Yeah. Trans men have a different experience in that regard, I think, mostly. Uh, it's like nobody notices. And I remember begging my parents to get a Levi jacket when I was in junior high school in about 1963, I guess, 64. 
and begging and begging and begging. And finally they gave in and got it for me, you know? And then, you know, that was all I ever wanted to wear. Mm -hmm. So then I was in trouble for that. Right, right. You know, so it's sort of like the, the inverse in a way. It's kind of strange, but it's, uh, there's still the same not knowing what's going on. Not well, I'm not sure you recall during that period you think you're the only one in the world that may yeah. experience these things. Right. Uh, and you don't have anybody to talk to. Right. And there's no way to get information. So you sit there with yourself. Mm -hmm. And you... You make stuff up. Well, you make stuff up. Um, <laughs> but you assume it's something, A, that will pass, B, that you're the only one in the world that feels this way, and C, that you're some kind of a freak and there's something going on. Mm -hmm. And that's how you end up growing up through your formative years, through your teen years, mm -hmm. high grade school years, teen mm -hmm. years. One of the, I mean, I still remember, if this gives you any indication, I still remember twice when I was growing up, I think it was fourth grade, and these are really my only remembrances, specifics, but once, uh, when I was in fourth grade, we had a Mexican festival and had Mexican dancing. And they had one too short, one too few girls. And so I volunteered to be one of the girl dancers. And I was praised for it. You know, everybody said, oh, that's really brave and blah, 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 and, you know. And so, but I felt great about it because it was one of the first times I was actually validated. The second time, uh, a few years later, I actually dressed as a girl going out on Halloween. Felt great. Everybody said, oh, you look so cute, all this other stuff. I got home and then had to kind of macho it up, you know, and, you know, I said, oh, I don't know about that, you know, and, and, and kind of macho it up so my parents knew that this was just an act. So, right. but if that gives you indication, that's 50 years ago, and I still remember those two specific instances. Mm -hmm. So they must have hit you pretty hard. That's right. Yeah. So when you got here, I, I, I read somewhere that you actually intended to go through a transition here, that you thought that this might be a, a more conducive environment for transitioning. How did that go for you? What did you well, find when you got to San Francisco? I, I came here for a couple of reasons. One is I liked the Bay Area. Secondly, I'd gone to two different therapists. One was right after my wife in 1980 kicked me out or 79. And he absolutely had no knowledge whatsoever of transsexuals and gender issues and didn't even know where to look. Mm -hmm. And so I was bringing books to him right. to read. And so that was not a good experience. The second experience I had was with, the, with this guy in LA who gave me electric shock treatment and felt that that was a way to cure it. Mm -hmm. So I was a little apprehensive about going to therapists. I read a book by a woman by the name of Millie Brown who was in Los Gatos. And at that time, she was kind of a recognized expert. Mildred Brown, she was a PhD yep. and kind of a recognized expert. And I said, fine, this is the woman I want to see. So I actually moved to Santa Cruz first. And then I'd lived in Southern California. I lived in Rancho Santa Fe and San Diego del Mar and all over Southern California. But I came up here after my second wife divorced me for exactly the same reason. Um, I moved up here to specifically be close to Mildred Brown. And so I made an appointment, started talking to her because I knew she could help me um, figure this thing out. Mm -hmm. uh, but, but knowing myself, I didn't trust anybody. So I actually um, went to a, a therapist in Marin at the same time. And I went to a, a peer specialist in San Francisco, a woman by the name of Gianna Israel, who was absolutely one of the one of the, my, really changed my life, but, and I actually went to all three of them weekly for um, 18 months or two years. Wow. And I went to three different um, groups every month as well in three other parts. So I had a bit of a suspicion about therapy at that time. <laughs> and so I didn't trust anybody, so mm -hmm. I needed an academic. I needed a trans therapist who was a licensed therapist, and I need a peer counselor to bounce everything off of. Mm -hmm. And fortunately or unfortunately, they all told me the same thing. <laughs> but, um, but that, yeah, that was kind of why I came here. Uh huh. Well, in, even in those days, there was a lot of pressure against actually 
fraternizing with other trans people. Um, it was lessening then, but still there were a lot of uh, admonitions, I think, for, from therapists to, to stay away from other trans people and and because uh, then you know you'll be more successfully transitioned because other people won't think you're trans if you're not hanging out with those trans people. What made you decide to get active in the trans politics? Um, that was not a conscious decision. A <laughs> member um, Mildred Brown told me uh, once that after you transition, you can live your life three different ways. One of three ways. One. Uh, you can try to go completely under the, under the radar, go stealth, and don't tell anybody. And so consequently, you're going into this, the, stealth, the stealth closet. Mm -hmm. But you won't have to experience discrimination and the issues. Second, you can live your life stealth, but not lie to anybody. If anybody asked you or even your family, you would tell them. The third is you can live your life completely open, get it out of the way, and not have to deal with it. I thought, well, I'm going to live stealth. Um, I wasn't entirely successful at that. Uh, but, um, but I actually got involved with Gwen Smith, uh -huh. who was uh, one of the founders of, uh, or the founder of DOR, of Day of Remembrance. Uh, right. She had a group called uh, TG Rage. And it was an acronym for something, for the life of me, I have no idea what it was. It was about 1998, the beginning I joined. She had a thing in the Guardian trans group meeting uh, in at um, a funky little coffee shop on McAllister Street, like McAllister and Hyde. Hmm. And so I went there, and there were like five or six of us. And Gwen, at that point, had been developing a website called Remembering Our Dead. And... I don't know how she got into it, but it became almost an obsession in her life, tracking dead transgender people around the world. And that was a part of the website for gender education and advocacy, where, That's right. which I was chair of the board of that organization, and Gwen was one of our board members and our web mistress. So she was, and so I, we developed, we decided to do the, a, a direct action. We ended up with a candlelight vigil, and she asked me. I ended up organizing the whole thing for the group. And so um, that's kind of my first step into activism because mm -hmm. I had to meet with the police and the city and you know all this stuff as a trans woman. I remember I met with Kuov, an organization here, and they said, just keep one thing in mind, if you meet with the police department, make sure you write down their name and make sure they show you their badge so you can write down their badge number because they're going to mistreat you. So that's kind of how I started. Kuav is Community United Against Violence. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, good organization. So I know that first, that first uh, vigil was on Castro and Market. It was. It was on a and, very, very and, rainy day. Um, we met downstairs in the Castro um, BART station or the Castro Muni station. Mm -hmm. Went upstairs and... I was shocked. We had about 100 to 125 people there, and we lined Castro Street all the way to 18th in front of the theater. And the reason we chose that is the Brandon Tina story, which was a trans man who'd been brutally beaten and killed, um, was showing at the theater that particular night in February. And so that's why we did it there. Mm -hmm. And But it was pouring down rain, and we, it was a silent candlelight vigil, and everyone had a different name uh, of a person that had died that year. And that's how the whole thing started. And again, it's an example of something that started here that had legs and now has international implications. Right. It's pretty amazing how many cities and even countries are actually mm -hmm. Yeah, acknowledging the Day of Remembrance in one way or another. So, um, you were a director and a vice president and a CEO of a number of companies, and mostly in environmental projects or waste management. And did you enjoy that work? Well, I did. I, you know, all my life I've been kind of cause-oriented, and I became a real recycling snob 
because my patent number one was recycling and what we what it did was <clears throat> not to get too technical since this is a liberal arts university I think right but um, but it, it distilled different different hazardous waste primarily oil or antifreeze or other toxic waste and purified them into re reusing them as a brand new product and so I became obsessed with that and one of the things I remember we I built a plant there's actually one of my plants still sitting uh, in Newark California down on the bay uh, recycling used oil but I, I you know and so yeah I did enjoy it um, then I went into toxic waste all kinds of toxic waste arsenic and all kinds of things and you know again you're, you're focused on the mission the mission is is to clean the environment and so yeah I very much enjoyed mm -hmm. it um, and I worked for a Dutch company for many years and traveled around the world uh, building facilities and living in different parts I had an apartment outside the Hague for a while um, I lived in Manila for a while um, uh, different places around the world uh, building re building toxic waste plants and um, so yeah, I enjoyed it, uh, but I also, it was a vehicle to allow me to work as many hours as I wanted. Many times I worked six, seven days a week, mm -hmm. worked 10 or 12 hours a day, which drove all thoughts of the, of the gender issues out of my mind. Right. And as long as I kept busy, then I was fine. The minute I took a vacation or let myself relax or between jobs, then the whole thing came back. And mm -hmm. it came back worse than it did before mm -hmm. or better depending on your perspective, but it came back hard. Mm -hmm. So it never, I was never without the gender issues, it's just sometimes the anxiety was sitting on my shoulders without, without presenting itself, and other times the anxiety actually presented itself in mm -hmm. some form. Mm -hmm. So it was always anxiety, never depression? No, you know, anxiety was constant. Mm. I mean, constant with me. Mm. Uh, yeah, you go into depression periodically, particularly after you dress for a weekend and then had to throw the clothes away. Mm -hmm. And then the shame hit and the guilt hit and the depression hit and it all hit at the same time. Mm -hmm. And so you go through a period of time, the first two days going back to work, you'd know that everybody could see that what you'd done. And then you would be depressed that you did it because it made you so feel so shameful mm -hmm. and so guilty because you were the only one doing it. You know, so why was I doing this when nobody else in the world was? Mm -hmm. So, yeah, it was all of those emotions. And, you know, I, Kansas State, I mean, I couldn't, every time I had breaks between class, I, I went, I lived in an apartment, went and dressed up, and I'd miss class. I mean, the anxiety was so bad during that period that I just finally gave up. And back then, you drop out of college, the draft board is the most amazing uh, government system <laughs> that's ever everything. been invented. They yep. can't get anything right now with the VA benefits, but within 30 days you had a draft notice when you dropped out of college back mm -hmm. then. Oh, yeah. And um, so, you know, that, that was kind of how it went. And how did you break that cycle? I didn't. No? I went to Mildred Brown. But you had, you had to, in order to get yourself to Mildred, Mildred Brown, you had to well, do something. I had a nervous breakdown. I you know, attempted suicide twice. I had a nervous breakdown in um, 97, 90, late 96, 97. Um, you know, I was almost, I'd almost became incapable of functioning mm -hmm. for a period of time. I'd already left my wife, or she'd left me at that time. So, um, you know, the only, the only option left was trying to seek knowledgeable therapist or knowledgeable mm -hmm. help or commit myself you mm -hmm. know i mean it really got that bad for me anyway i don't know other people may have experienced that depth but uh but for me it was that bad mm -hmm. and the problem was i'd sold my company or had i owned a small percentage of the company i ran so i had i mean i you know i had a million dollars in the bank uh, of course this was before the divorce but um <laughs> but i had a, so i didn't have to work and so all I had was my thoughts. And so I started buying Harleys and I started, you know, smoking cigars and I, you know, I bought fancy cars and I bought hot rods and I had all these toys and nothing made me happy. Mm -hmm. um, and I would say I was almost at the pinnacle of what a 
cisgender, white, entitled man would strive for. I was head of corporations. My next, I'd been offered a job at a Fortune 200 corporation as a chief operating officer, COO. I turned it down. Hmm. Um, I was at the pinnacle. I lived in, a, had a five-acre estate in Southern California. I mean, and I kept getting deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper into depression. Mm -hmm. So there's only one way up. And that is to try to figure out what's causing it and how you deal with it. And mm -hmm. that's when I decided to come up here, move to Santa yeah. Cruz. And, and you eventually did have to get some work up yeah. here. And how was that? Well, I was unemployed for over two years. And I applied for about 150 different jobs and uh, got a few interviews and always turned down. And the jobs, you could see the minute you walked into the office to do an interview, you knew it was over. I mean, you could just tell it was over. And... Um, and then there's the issue of disclosing your background mm -hmm. and then them calling and your references. I mean, so it was very complicated and it was not good. Yeah. I, mean, I mean, there's a recent study just came out uh, by Washington, uh, city of Washington, D.C. Uh, even today, 48% uh, of the trans people who applied in a controlled study, in a test, applied uh, the same job as a cisgender person, 48% got turned down, and even when they were more qualified. So th it still is prevalent today, but back then it was, I mean, it was, I mean, there was just no way. Right, there was no protections at all. So I, you know, I, I went through all the money I had. I, you know, transitioned, I'd lost a lot during divorce, went through all the money I had, was broke, and the only job I ended up getting is with a friend of mine who was the president of DeSoto Cab, and I got a job as a cab driver. And I did that for well, a year and a half. It was a great job. I, I really enjoyed it. It's kind of transgender boot camp. I mean, you could, <laughs> I mean, seriously, you could try different voices. You could try different personalities. You, you know, you could be flighty. You could be serious. You know, because you had 30 new people every, every night well, that's wonderful. get into your cab. And so, you know, you could, do, you could act. You could try out different personalities. You do whatever you want. And, um, but I didn't make a lot of money because I kept having this habit of picking up homeless people and particularly women and taking them to shelters and they did not big payers. Right. Um, so I ended up, you know, going broke and um, I couldn't live and so I ended up moving to Guerneville for a mm. while. Yeah. And then things got political. Well, uh, I lived in Guerneville with two women I'd known in my previous life who were very, very good friends. Mm -hmm. And uh, they basically paid for me for five or six months, wow. everything. Nice. Um, and my mother passed away right about that time and mm -hmm. left me $25,000, mm -hmm. me and my brothers and sisters. So I used it to have surgery. And so I had surgery during that period of time. And then when I got done, I'd uh, met a guy by the name of Mark Leno through an intermediary. And he asked me if I'd like to work on his campaign. This was his original campaign for supervisor way back in the 90s. Mm -hmm. And uh, Carol's shaking her head because she remembers it. Um, mm -hmm. But, um, and I worked to work for him and ended up running his field operation. And he and I became really, really close friends. And he won. Yeah. Um, so we became good friends. And so his good friend, Willie Brown, um, appointed me as a commissioner on the Human Rights Commission. And I was the first, I was, only, I was the second actually transgender person to be appointed to a commission in San Francisco. One was, the first one was Jane Bolig, and she was appointed to the Taxi Commission. Uh, I was the second, and I was appointed to the Human Rights Commission as a Human Rights Commissioner. And that kind of opened a lot of things up, because at that point I was no longer stealth. The stealth right. days were kind of behind me, and yeah. not that there ever were any real stealth days. And um, so I, I, I started, you know, in human rights back then as a commissioner. Mm -hmm. And you were there for how long? I was there until 2004, um, and, but that's not a paid position, so you still have to have a day job. So a company called Good Vibrations was advertising for um, um, holiday help. And so I, I had a friend that worked there, so I went to work for Good Vibrations packing dildos 
you know, during the holiday rush season, which was great from this <laughs> this this girl from Kansas, and it kind of it kind of opened up my mind to yeah, a lot sure. of things, you know. Oh, yeah. And I packed dildos and vibrators, and God only knows what else we had. Um, and the thing about good vibrations, though, they have a really good promotion program. And I went from that, applied for the job as CFO, which is financial manager, and was hired as a financial manager CFO. Mm-hmm. And so I worked for Good Vibration. Ultimately, I became president later in, in, in my career. I worked for I worked to good vibe for Good Vibrations from 2000, um, 2001, early 2001 until um, 2008. So I worked there seven eight years, and it was it was maybe one of the most uh, fulfilling jobs I've ever had. That's great. Because they were gender nonconforming. Number one, it opens you up about sex and sexuality, yeah. and you honestly can't have any more fun than you can have a good vibration working there. There is no possible place you can have any more fun than that. Um, <laughs> but you also, you also educate people, and you learn things about yourself that you right. probably would never learn anywhere else. Mm-hmm. And um, plus, I was able to apply my business skills, plus I met some of the closest people some of my closest friends that I have today. Mm-hmm. Yep, it's a great, it was a great crucible. <laughs> so, actually, I'm curious, because of all your political and public service work and city commissions, you've been exposed to a lot of media. What do you think about the explosion in media exposure that the trans community is experiencing presently? Well, I think it's good. Uh, I think I think the exposure is good. Um, I mean, Laverne Cox was kind of the first big one out there. I guess Candace Kane was on a couple of TV shows, and then Laverne Cox, and then and then our friend Caitlin, you know, jumped on the scene. Um, and I think, I mean, anytime you get 15, 18, 20 million people seeing transgender, whether they're right or wrong, whether what they say is right or wrong, good or bad, mm-hmm. you know, it can't help but help. And I think all of that's been very good. There's things that concern me. Number one is some of the messages some may be putting out may not be the message I would want put out, mm-hmm. particularly about trans women of color, uh, trans people of color, the trans experience of poverty related with trans experience, the, uh, the violence related with being trans. Uh, I mean, there's a lot of moving parts there mm-hmm. that aren't really being brought out, but maybe that's our job, mm-hmm. yours and my job as activists to bring it out. Yeah. Um, the other thing that concerns me, and I, I don't know if there's a correlation or not, is once Laverne Cox appeared on t- the cover of Time magazine, um, suicide starts spiking. Mm-hmm. Um, and some violence started spiking. Yeah. And the question is, does, does visibility create more hatred in certain elements in certain yeah. parts of, of our world? I don't know. I'd like to think that's not the case, but I think it's hard not to believe that, that there isn't something there. Well, I think it's like with just with the same thing as, you know, you open up health benefits for trans people and all of a sudden there's going to be a spike of trans people wanting services that we didn't know about before, but of course you knew it was coming. And then it, you know, sort of peters out and and you have... It peters out. It peters out. And you have a normal sort of uh, trajectory of, you know, a sort of more more uh, regular right. number going along. Well, you know, well, and I think that's the same thing with exposure. I, I think that probably you get some people who get very excited, you get some people who get very angry, and if, you know, like I, th- I think about the, the young trans person in uh, Ohio, I think it was, who, who basically killed herself with a notice on the, on the web saying, you know, fix this. And it was about her parents absolutely not Your being, parents, by the way, tolerance. her name was Layla, and her parents buried her under her male name. Yeah. But, um, no, you're absolutely right. Uh, I mean, but the fact is, is we have more violence against LGBT people, and particularly the ones that are characterized as hate crimes in San Francisco during Pride Week than any other time of the year. Mm-hmm. So is that because there's more available? It's more open, or it brings people in. 
or the visibility. So I don't, I don't, I'm not suggesting that there's a correlation. I think at some point maybe CIIS would take a look at that to see mm -hmm. you know, if there's some one. kind of correlation there. Um, I think also, booze. I think also there's an interesting correlation going on now is 90% of all trans homicides that we know of in the United States are trans women of color. Mm -hmm. um, half of those it's suspected were a victim of domestic violence. Um, almost as many trans suicides have been identified now, and 60, 70% of the trans suicides are white people, and more than half of those are trans men, with the median age of around 17 or 16. Mm -hmm. So why do, why is this happening to white people when they're younger, I mean, there's all kinds of explanations. You know, African-Americans sometimes have to do survival sex and they have to have risky occupations and risky behavior sometimes. You know, white people are more affluent, more entitled. They have access to the Internet. Since Lila posted hers, there's been three more, uh, either mm -hmm. on Instagram or on Facebook, uh, suicide notes of, of trans people. So mm -hmm. um, this fun, all of this is, I, you know, the visibility is good. Mm -hmm. But there are some things that are occurring now that haven't occurred before that could be attributable to, to, to some of the increased visibility. Mm -hmm. I, I, I don't know. Well, it's easy to say, too, well, if you guys just stayed in your closet, nobody would know about you and you wouldn't have these problems, right? Well, yeah, I guess. I mean, it's a big closet, you know. Yeah, now but we're I finding mean, out there's a lot of us out there now. Right. And, uh, um, but yeah, I mean, discrimination is discrimination. Yep. You know, hate crimes are hate crimes. Violence yep. is violence. And, yep. And why people do that? Why do people? Why in '64 did they beat up African Americans for the color of their skin and, and murder them? Why? Why have Latinos had such a hard problem in San Francisco? Uh, trans Latinas are the number one uh, group that have had homicides in, in San Francisco over mm -hmm. the last 10 years. So it's all, you know, it's all hate-driven. Mm -hmm. It's all discriminatory. And we're not confronting that hate in a constructive way. We're not getting at what it is that can turn that around. I don't know that we know yet. Yeah. I mean, we have a hate crime coalition with, within Human Rights Commission, and what's interesting is, is a hate crime seems to generate a lot of activity within uh, a month after it occurred. After that, people aren't as interested in hate crimes. I mean, we would have a coalition that would come together with 30 people after a hate crime occurred in San Francisco. Within a month, we could get, could get three people to attend a meeting. Hmm. And so it seems to be very reactive, mm -hmm. but there doesn't seem to be a sustainable effort. And we've worked with the DA, and we've worked with the police department here, and we've not come up with a sustainable model. And I still think we'll be able to, but we just haven't. We're not there yet. Yeah. It's an interesting problem. Interesting problem. It's a really serious problem, and I think we somehow we've got to get a think tank together to to work on it. Well, because I think Fr some of the the typical ways that we've approached it haven't been effective. San Francisco this year, and I've said this before uh, in public, uh, and the mayor is actually proud of this, as is the Board of Supervisors. This year, San Francisco is committing $2 million to transgender issues in San Francisco. Great. It's, it's probably double or triple any other city in the country, if not double or triple any two or three cities in the country. Mm -hmm. uh, we're looking at hate violence. We're looking at community organizing. We're looking at um, dom uh, domestic violence. We're looking at um, uh, jobs, 200,000 for creation of new jobs. We're looking at 200,000 to support trans Latinas. We're looking at 160,000 to look at LGBT and trans violence measures. Um, we're looking at $500,000 this year will be spent on, on universal trans surgeries for low-income people, mm -hmm. only place in the world where a municipality is supporting uh, trans surgeries. Uh, another $500,000, $400,000 on HIV prevention and HIV uh, detection in San Francisco around trans issues. So we're spending a lot of money, and my attitude is if we can't do it here, it can't be done. <laughs> and I still think we can do it, and with the assistance of 
you know, I, I'm on a UC, um, University of California Office of President Advisory Committee, and UC is stepping forward with doing some pretty revolutionary things um, on applications. They're, they're going to require every application for an undergraduate student who applies to any UC campus statewide, they're going to have to answer one, or they're going to be asked to answer one, is your birth sex, two, is your gender identity, um, three, your sexual orientation, and four, where you feel you are seen on a scale of masculine to feminine in the center. Mm -hmm. um, and that's going to be, and I don't know how many applications uh, University of California Systems receives, but I would guess it's in the hundreds of thousands. Mm -hmm. And that's going to be in every single undergraduate application this year. That's good. And, and, and um, sexual orientation is going to be not just gay and straight. It's going to talk about the rainbow. It's going to talk about gender queer. It's going to talk about a bunch of things. Um, uh, gender is going to talk about asexual, pansexual, um, and a number of different categories. So trans man, trans woman. And so it's going to be pretty revolutionary. Mm -hmm. um, they're also doing, and um, starting, I think, this year or next year, a... Um, uh, a, a conference and it'll be annualized that the office of president is paying for directly to um, to highlight uh, LGBT and specifically transgender research projects in the academic community. Excellent. And it's going to be national this year or next year. It's going to be international the following year, and then it's going to be perpetual. Um, so there's that. There's a human sexuality program that CIIS has, has started that is that is going to have a huge impact. So I believe that we can do that. We can do it here. I just don't know if the rest of the country is is quite as advanced as mm -hmm. we are. And so it's going to be our 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 it's going to be incumbent upon us to take what we learn here and make sure other people understand what it is. Right. And we have to do that by not cramming it down their throat. We have to do it in a way that somehow gets them to want to know, mm -hmm. to right. realize that it's important to know. Yeah. Wow. Making changes everywhere. A lot going on. Yeah. That's exciting. We, we, this year we had our first, we have four transgender uh, male, trans men, police officers uh, who have been on the force for a while. And this year we had our first trans woman who's now an SFPD officer. And so we're excited about that as well. So, uh, again, baby mm -hmm. steps. Mm -hmm. Excellent. Well, what would you like people to know about you that you haven't already talked about? Uh, you know, I don't know. I, I, I think my life is pretty open. Um, most things about me have been written. Some of them, most of them real and true. Um, <laughs> you know, I don't know. I, I just think we all do what we can do. Uh, I didn't, and I think being an activist, most people don't, I don't think most people start out wanting to be an activist. Mm -hmm. I think something occurs in their life um, that moves them in that direction, either that makes them mad or hurts them or somebody they know is hurt or something in their life. And I think that's kind of what happened to me. I became an advocate, and I like that term rather than activist, an mm -hmm. advocate for what we do because I was pushed that way for some reason. And it just kind of, when I was on the police commission, I was on the police commission for five years, and I was president for three years, and that's something that was very unusual for a trans person. It still is, actually, because I was the first, the only, and there's not one now anywhere in the country. Mm -hmm. um, but those are things uh, that you end up doing is you're kind of on the, on the treadwheel and you keep moving. And mm -hmm. I think that's what I would like to encourage people, particularly young people getting out of school, looking at these social issues, is to give advocacy a chance. Look at social justice as, as a possible avocation. Um, because I think there's a lot of work to do. The trans community, there's tons of work to do. I, I mean, we've just scratched the surface. Mm -hmm. I mean, you and I are going to go out to pasture one of these days. One of these days. Um, <laughs> and, um, and we need to bring people on. We need leadership in the right. trans community. We need solid leadership in the trans community to keep pushing this, this envelope forward. Yep. Um, 
So that's what, what I hope, and that's what my legacy is, hopefully, uh, is that I encourage other people to get involved. Mm-hmm. Because if, a, if a, you know, somebody from Beaver Cleaver from Kansas can, can, you know, do the things that I've done, hopefully anybody can, particularly if you have a formal education, which I don't. Um, and that's what I really am looking for and what I'm looking to hopefully we accomplish in the next couple or three years is start to generate a new generation of leaders, mm-hmm. a new generation of advocates. Because where there were five of us 20 years ago, there ought to be 500 of us now. Mm-hmm. And that's what we're going for. And that's what the community needs. Because just think what we can accomplish in the next generation. Well, there are a lot of young trans activists across the country and, in fact, around the world. But we're not seeing a lot of that same spirit here in the city anymore. Well, unfortunately, we've kind of become a product of our own publicity. Uh, (laughs) You know, we've kind of failed people because now it's been trans, to a certain extent, in San Francisco is normalized. Mm-hmm. It's no different than lesbian and gays. It's kind of normalized. It used to be when I was with an organization called Transgender San Francisco, and it used to be called ETVC even before that. I was their outreach chair back in whenever, in the 90s. And we used to publish quarterly a list of restaurants that it was safe to go to to eat. And that was one page. Mm-hmm. Right. And um, now you can go anywhere. I mean, I, there isn't a neighborhood in San Francisco you can't go now and not feel as safe as you would in another one. I'm not going to say you feel safe, but as safe as you would in any other neighborhood. So we've normalized it here. Mm-hmm. So people aren't as concerned about moving the, the, the bubble. Right. Uh, because you don't need to. I mean, still, we have a lot. We have employment issues. We have a lot of things that we yep. haven't conquered here, but it's yep. more normalized. Mm-hmm. And... Um, but we do, I think what's evolving, and, and I, I say this when I talk now, is the next frontier, I mean, transgender people, we're kind of yesterday's news. I mean, with Caitlin and 20 million people seeing it, you know, we're yesterday's news. The issue now is, is genderqueer. Yeah. And people who do not conform to the norm, do not conform to the gender binary. Right. And that's the next Mm-hmm. Uh, the next, the next frontier, and if you think about it, that's a much more difficult one than transgender when you conform to the binary. I mean, people can actually understand. Okay, fine, you've got a medical condition. You thought you were a girl when you were young. Now you want to become a girl full time. Fine, that's somehow getting through, you know, people's heads. But the gender queer thing in the middle, that's a little hard to understand. I mean, I've had senior LG. B activists tell me, you know, for God's sakes, why can't they just make up their mind? Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, and that's, that's going to be hard. And that's the next generation. And that's the yeah. next mountain we're going to have to climb. We're not even sure how we, we're looking at our gender non-discrimination ordinances in San Francisco. And we're not even sure exactly how we're going to change them to be able to, to be able to, to protect gender queer. Well, actually, I wrote the ordinance originally mm-hmm. in San Francisco, and I tried at that time to make it as broad as possible because, in my experience, I was gender queer for 40 mm-hmm. years. And people couldn't tell what sex I was. It wasn't like, and I couldn't be any different. It wasn't like I understood that I was trans. It wasn't like I understood that I was, I knew I wasn't a girl and I wasn't a boy. I didn't know what I was, but you know, I didn't fit in, and I thought for a long time um, that that should be okay, and I still think that. Well, I, and that's about the the whole, you know, gender queer thing. No, I do too, and we we revised it in two thousand three from your original version to include um, uh, necessary nudity, you know, locker rooms and things like that, and mm. to try to clarify it. And it needs to be changed again because. Um, of, of movement. I mean, San Francisco now, David Campos is going to offer a uh, proposed ordinance soon uh, that will uh, address single-use bathrooms in San Francisco and also give building owners the option to make multi-use, multi-stall bathrooms uh, non, non-gendered in San Francisco. Mm-hmm. Um, so we're going to have to deal with this, and it's going to have to be dealt with yeah. going forward. And to me, that's the biggest single 
maybe the other than violence, you know, that's maybe the biggest single obstacle that, that has to be yeah. overcome the next decade. Well, I also think about health care. I think if you have access to health care, that you are seen as a human being. If you don't have access to health care, it's really easy for people not to see you as a human being. Yeah, and, um, and again, we're very fortunate here that we have yeah. the city, we have Kaiser, we have, you know, we were able to uh, meet with, along with Transgender Law Center a couple of years ago with the Department of Managed Healthcare in San Francisco, in the state of California. Mm -hmm. And last year, uh, you know, law was passed that all healthcare providers in the state of California have to offer uh, gender surgeries or gender uh, equality mm -hmm. in healthcare. Right. And so we're pretty lucky here, but again, uh, we're not, it's not as lucky elsewhere. Mm -hmm. I know, because I've been working on that since 1994 mm -hmm. when, uh, <laughs> when we passed the ordinance on non-discrimination and then I turned to Larry Brinken and said, guess what? Now you're in violation of your equal benefits ordinance. Yeah, <laughs> what? No, it's a, <laughs> it's a difficult issue. I mean, yeah. we still have issues. I mean, everybody applauded that, um, that the Affordable Care Act uh, eliminated discrimination against transgender people and that Medicare would start cover covering transgender people. Well, Totally sort of. screwed up our system with working with Medi-Cal mm -hmm. because now Medicare covers it, but, but as I found out last night, for full transition surgery for a female, they'll cover up to twelve hundred dollars. Um, and so, um, a, a healthcare provider, a surgeon, is not going to take twelve hundred dollars. Well, Medi-Cal does not go into effect until Medicare has already been paid, and so consequently, what before before Medi-Cal eliminated discrimination, uh, Medicare eliminated discrimination. Medi-Cal would pay for it. Hmm. Because Medicare wouldn't. Now that Medicare will, irrespective if it's thousand dollars, Medi-Cal will not. And so, consequently, we've got a real problem, and that's a bureaucratic yeah, thing. That can be fixed. And we're trying to fix it now. But in the meantime, up until two weeks ago, we had thirty-nine women waiting for uh, surgery in San Francisco. Now we've broken loose and that the city step forward and say, okay, we'll put $500,000 in this and we'll get these surgeries done, which they did. But that's not a long-term solution. We've right. got to figure this thing out. And right. so, well, we're in a transitional phase. We are in a transitional phrase, a phase and it's bureaucratic. It's not policy right. because the policy was to eliminate discrimination. But right. this is bureaucratic now and so yep. it needs to be broken. Well, a part of the reason for that is that Medicare didn't actually offer affirmative coverage. They just removed mm -hmm. the exclusion. That's right. And they left it up to local coverage determinations on a case-by-case -case basis. Well, and, and the codes they're using cover uh, cis women who have some type of, of uh, vaginal issue, whether it's an accident or whether it's some kind of disease or something. And mm. so they offer uh, repairing a cisgender's, um, you know, Sex, sex, you know, organs, the, vag the vagina and their yeah. sex organs, which they offer up to like, it's like a thousand or twelve hundred dollars. It's a very little amount of money. Yeah. It's for outpatient in some doctor's office. And oh, so boy. they still haven't changed the codes, nor have they met right. Mr. President of WPATH. They haven't met yet. I don't uh, have authority on <laughs> codes. They haven't met yet to actually determine what those codes will be and what the market rate, you know, for surgeries are. Right. And that's what NCLR, that's what TLC and others are working on every, every single day. Yeah, and I've been talking with the Gay and Lesbian Medical Association and the APA and the AMA mm -hmm. on talking about how do we advocate for this. Mm -hmm. The AMA actually has influence there. Almost nobody else does. Right. So I think healthcare, again, we've got to get this violence under control. Yep. I'm not sure exactly how we do it. Uh, I think first thing we have to do is get the police department on our side 100%. I mean, I did trainings for the police department in 2003, and, and the violence against trans people by law enforcement dropped from 90% to less than five after one cycle of training in San Francisco, as, as reported by the National Violence Project. That's good. Um, but now it's back up because we haven't been able to sustain the training. And this is the case. I went to a hate crimes forum in Billings, Montana uh, a year ago, and a trans man got beat up. The 
the last night of the hate crimes forum. So, I mean, we're not there yet. No. We're not there yet. We have yet. a long way to go. That's right. And so that's an issue. Um, uh, employment. I mean, if you read, you know, still easily 50% of trans people are either unemployed or, or uh, underemployed. Including um, me. <laughs> you know, uh, but, but that's an issue. So, I mean, I, I can't, I don't want anybody to think that we're over the hump here. I mean, we've got right. a long ways to go, and it's a very serious situation, and we're finding there's more and more trans people than we thought there were, and if you add the gender nonconforming on top of it, it probably quadruples what's actually the number of people that are out there. So mm -hmm. instead of 0.5 or 0.2 of 1%, we're probably looking at 1 to 1.5%, maybe 2% of the total population, mm -hmm. and that's starting to actually add up to big numbers. Mm -hmm. Yep. Fortunately, not everybody wants surgery. But well, big numbers are good because... Well, a lot of people don't, and I think that's yeah. great. I think people should be proud of, the, of, of you know, their body. Mm -hmm. uh, unfortunately, some of us weren't able to do that. Mm -hmm. Weren't able to feel pride mm -hmm. in our bodies. Yeah, I know. Um, and so, but a lot of people are. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a huge, huge psychological step and that's yep. something that's to be applauded in our community now completely yep. absolutely uh, absolutely right. all right thank you very much teresa congratulations on everything that you've managed to accomplish thank you thank you very much and thank you for being here with us tonight thank you i appreciate it and thank you all You've been listening to the podcast for the California Institute of Integral Studies. If you liked what you heard, find us and subscribe on iTunes or listen on our website, ciis.edu slash public programs.